The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Welcome to the program this Monday morning. Oil prices jump after OPEC and its allies signal they will maintain output cuts this year. Russia's energy minister tells CNBC they'll continue to work together. We are supportive of continuing our cooperation with our colleagues from other countries and OPEC and non-OPEC nations. But this continuation could depend to various extents on how the situation unfolds. Tensions with Tehran escalate as President Trump warns any conflict would be the official end of Iran. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia's energy minister urges vigilance following recent attacks on oil facilities. Everybody is vulnerable to, uh, to extreme acts of sabotage. Everybody is vulnerable to the whole global community. It needs to be vigilant, it needs to be united. Acts against uh, infrastructure globally. Huawei feels more sanctions heat amid a report. Google is suspending some business with the Chinese tech firm, sending shares in Huawei suppliers lower. Australian equity markets hit an 11-year high after Prime Minister Scott Morrison leads the Conservative coalition to a surprise election victory. A very warm welcome to you all. Happy Monday. I hope you all had a lovely and restful weekend as well. There is so much going on in the world at the moment, of course. Uh, we'll talk about trade in a little bit more detail. But we've got European parliamentary elections this week as well. And after the debacle at the top over in Austria over the weekend, it's interesting to see how incumbent parties across the continent are going to fare. I think they're going to get an absolute drubbing. Uh, and I don't think that's me being particularly... politically particularly political, I think it's just the fact that that is what's going on. If you look at the incumbents across the board, their ratings from the UK to France to Germany are under a lot of pressure, as I say, uh, not least the fact that you've got countries like Austria that have incredibly... How can I say? Uh, politicians acting like politicians at the top of the situation. Plus, you've got, of course, the global interest rate scenario as well. Lots of clues on what's going on in the United States this week, including the Fed chair, Mr. Powell, will be speaking today uh, at the Atlanta Fed as well. Uh, Fed minutes come out on Wednesday and a bit of interesting data Thursday, Friday, new home sales and durable goods. Now, back to the broader markets as well. Uh, this is what we saw on the Friday session. Pretty much the moves for the week where the Dow was down seven tenths of one percent. The the S&P down eight temps uh, and the Nasdaq composite down 1.3%, faring badly, but perhaps not as bad as some had feared, uh, given the oscillation we saw uh, before. A little bit more calm came back into the market towards the tail end of the week. Oil markets, very important, of course, looking at the, the big factors, i.e. what's going on with Middle East tensions, with Iran and what have you, uh, and on the other side of the equation, uh, slowing global growth, potentially on the back of a US trade war. Big concerns there as well. Asian markets also having to uh, compete with all these factors going on. The Nifty 50 up 2.5%. The Hang Seng down four temps. But everybody is looking for the clues, the runes. What is the deciding factor on the trade war? Is it getting uh, more into an era of rapprochement or are things getting harder? Are people are looking at treasuries. Lots and lots of commentary about if treasuries are being sold off or not. I saw an interesting piece in the FT saying it just wouldn't suit uh, the Chinese to sell treasuries because where would they put them? Negative yield in JGBs? Maybe not negative yielding buns, 
maybe not as well. So there aren't a lot of other places from a yield perspective. So that's one side of things as well. Of course, people looking at Huawei as well uh, and what's going on there and the latest moves from Google. People looking at the Remimbi. Is that going to be a weapon in this? Is seven the magic number or not? Border checks, naval maneuvers, there's all kinds of factors. A quick look at the opening calls as well. But has my colleague Jeffrey Cutmore, and here you can see the opening calls for European markets, has he found the ultimate symbol, signal, the point? Wow. It's not about Huawei. Good morning, Karen. Lovely to see you. Brilliant work in Paris, by the way. It's not necessarily about border checks, about the uh, this Remimbi and Seven. Is it really about pandas, Jeffrey? Well, you know, it's getting very serious when China starts to talk about taking back its giant pandas. Panda diplomacy is very Panda famous. Panda diplomacy is enormous. And it was, of course, uh, the early days of uh, the opening up of China that saw the shuttle diplomacy involving the flight of pandas to zoos around so the world. why is this relevant in so, the current debate? So the story is, and um, I haven't personally verified this, but as I <laughs> read it in the newspapers, uh, it does appear that uh, China has asked for its two giant pandas back from San Diego Zoo. So if those pandas make the flight back to China, I think that's quite a, a serious message as to just how badly these current negotiations are going on. It reminds me, actually, do you remember Lynn Truss wrote a very good book about how to uh, use English and where to put the punctuation and how grammar should work. No. And it was called Eat, Shoots and Leaves. Oh, yes, yes, of course. And that's a little bit like the San Diego pandas, isn't it? Because now they're off. Back in China, just to confirm, so it has been a black and white case where you've had a trade oh, issue nice. and you've had them back in, nice. in, the, in China. Terrific. Well done. You got, that's the first of the morning. Just, just before we move Wrong. on to your markets, absolutely big story there. Did you find that the China story was overriding at your fantastic event, VivaTech, in uh, Paris last it, week? It certainly cropped up, but I don't think a lot of people knew what to do with it exactly because don't forget we're talking hardware and software, the services side, and that was a step further than many had expected. And you've seen the, the likes of Google taking a couple of days to ascertain what it's actually going to mean to come out with a response. So I think we're going to see more of those announcements about what type of business you can do with China. And just, about, just 20 seconds, the Google story, we'll come to it later on as yeah. well, but massive announcement, Google having to pull away potentially some of its apps from Huawei devices. Yeah, so the problem is that a lot of the Chinese mobile companies use the Android operating system. And now that you've got Huawei effectively having problems doing business with Android and Google, you've got to say, well, where does this go next? Is it just going to be a Huawei story? Is it just contained? Or does it involve other Chinese companies, a, a Xiaomi, some of the other big Chinese companies that have produced their own mobile phones? Does this run much, much further, particularly if relations are cooling between two countries? Yeah. So I think this is a massive story, particularly for other phone makers around the world who are looking at this and saying, well, if it can be taken away from Huawei, it could be taken away from us. Absolutely. And that really changes the nature of the economic offering that uh, Google has here. But we'll come back to this in just a moment. I think we should put this story on pause. <laughs> uh, oil markets are in a delicate situation, but there is an OPEC consensus to gently drive down inventories. That's according to Saudi Energy Minister Khalid Al-Fali, who spoke at the OPEC Plus meeting in Jeddah on Sunday. Meantime, Russia's energy minister has told CNBC he he also supports a stable market. Well, let's get out to Dan in Jeddah. And Dan, I think this is key because I think those of us who travel in and out of Russia have long held the view that this is an uncomfortable relationship that not everybody is on side with, particularly the Russian energy companies. But the message that you got, the Russians are definitely signed up to staying within this OPEC agreement. 
That's exactly right, Jeff. Good morning to you all. If you're just waking up across Europe, there's a story developing in the oil market that you need to know about. As you can see here, oil prices up more than 1% after the Saudi energy minister Khalid al-Fala said in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, where we are, that major producers here are now inching towards a production extension of the current deal at, as we head into the June OPEC meeting. And that's very significant. Uh, he basically said that, yes, there are a number of uncertainties in the market. However, these major producers need to stay the course when it comes to that agreement which expires in just a few weeks time and he said that there is an effort still underway to reduce global inventory so it is likely that we will see some kind of a rollover of this deal however as you point out Jeff there is clear tensions between Saudi Arabia and Russia when it comes to this agreement because the Russians have been slow to reach full compliance to this agreement and their obligations under the agreement and at the same time they also seem reluctant to continue cutting. Of course, uh, we spoke with the Saudi energy minister, Khaled al-Fala, to get an insight into some of the fundamentals in the market today. Uh, he says that, yes, there is likely to be an extension, and here's why. Listen in. Overall, the market is in a delicate situation. market is in a delicate situation. On the one hand, there is a lot of concern about the technology, about disruptions. There's a lot of concern about disruptions. Sanctions and supply interruptions. But on the other hand, we see uh, inventories rising, we see uh, plentiful of supply uh, around the world. We're seeing the markets, we're seeing it in Western markets, which leads me to think that all in all, we should be uh, in a comfortable situation in the weeks and months to come. Now, so far, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, another major producer, have held off on those US calls to increase production to make up for the loss of Iranian barrels from this market as a result of those US sanctions. There are a number of other uncertainties in the market as well, including outages from Venezuela, Libya and Nigeria. And that's something that these producers are all working to navigate around as they come into this June OPEC meeting. On the Russia side, at least, Alexander Novak told me in a first on CNBC interview that he would like to see some kind of volume adjustment as part of a new deal. Now, that's quite significant. Clearly, the Russians, as I pointed out before, have been less inclined to cut output. But at the same time, it would also help their economy if they were able to pump more oil. The problem that comes as a result of these tensions is that this could potentially fracture OPEC. What we've also seen is rising geopolitical tensions in the region as well, not only because of a drone, a drone strike on a Saudi pipeline, but also because of a recent sabotage attack on vessels off the coast of the UAE. Don't forget the US influence across this region as well. We've seen the United States deploying more military assets into the region and also ending those Iran export waivers, which has certainly fled tensions between countries out here. Just in the past 24 hours, we've also heard from the US President Donald Trump taking to Twitter to warn of the end of Iran if it continues with its rhetoric. I put some of this to the Russian energy minister and asked him about these geopolitical tensions and what kind of challenges that they may present to the oil market and these major producers as they come into the June OPEC meeting. And also more specifically, what a volume adjustment might actually look like. Listen in. As far as Russia is concerned, we initially said for the winter period that we can't sharply reduce production and we have completed our plan over the last three months to achieve our planned figures. That's quicker than it was two years ago and our companies have implemented the agreement in terms of volume. 
We are committed to implementing the agreement and we will implement it fully to the end of July. And currently at the end of May, we have even overcomplied by more than 100%. As far as our joint plan of action for the second half of the year, we are supportive of continuing our cooperation with our colleagues from other countries and OPEC and non-OPEC nations. But this continuation could depend to various extents on how the situation unfolds by this time and what the forecast for supply and demand will be on the market. So what does that review look like then? What are we going to see when we come into this June OPEC meeting? What type of changes to this agreement will take place? In the second half of June, there will be a ministerial meeting. In preparation for this, the technical committee will meet, which will also have the results for May and a better idea of the forecast for the second half of the year. Therefore, I think we'll have everything necessary to make the right decision in the interests of the market, primarily in the interests of both the exporter and consumer countries, which will become balanced in the second half of the year. For us, first and foremost, we mustn't allow simultaneously, we shouldn't allow either a shortfall or, for example, a glut in the market, which might fundamentally affect the situation with reserves. We aim to achieve reserves close to a five-year average level. The reason why it's difficult to take a decision today is because we can see that the current situation is fairly uncertain. On the one hand, the agreement is being overfulfilled. On the other, the reserves, according to the Special Operations Department figures, have been growing over the last two weeks. And it's important to analyze this and later see how the situation will develop with demand. Will it be the same demand that is being forecast? Russia's energy minister, Alexander Novak, speaking first on CNBC at the JMMC meeting late yesterday. So guys, a number of different scenarios that could potentially take place as we come into this June OPEC meeting. It is likely that we will see the production deal being rolled over, but as I pointed out before, whether or not a volume adjustment is on the agenda remains to be seen. What would a volume adjustment look like? Well, as Novak points out, compliance has been strong. It was up more than 160% in April. So we may see a reduction in compliance, probably from Saudi Arabia, which could pump more oil in order to make up for those lost Iranian barrels. Or we could potentially see consensus among the group to lift production and actually reduce that 1.2 million barrel figure. But as Novak also points out, still a lot of uncertainties and it does seem like no decision has been made at this point. Back over to you. Excellent work there, Dan. Thank you very much indeed for that. Right, and for more on the options that Alexander Novak says are open to OPEC and its allies in the second half, head online to cnbc.com. Uh, Matt Clinch's piece uh, really picks up on the best parts of that interview. There's a link to a next story around oil prices. Uh, just noting in the Ryanair numbers that have crossed this morning that the fuel bill for 2020 has gone up. 460 million euros is uh, the expectation. Now, this is the company post numbers today 1.02 billion euros has been posted for the year that is down on 1.45 billion from last year also at the low end of the range uh, from the company's update earlier this year also slightly below analyst expectations the forecast now for next year 750 million to 950 million uh, is where the uh, profit numbers are likely to be share buyback uh, has uh, been tied up to 700 million and that will begin later this week, I believe. Uh, let's get into the details. Neil Sorohan with us, CFO of Ryanair. Neil, nice to see you this morning. Right, Thank morning. you for joining us. Good to be here. The numbers today look weak. Now, the market has been primed for numbers that will be hit by a couple of different factors. Industrial relations has been cited, the grounding of the 737 MAX and also fare prices with a lot of extra competition on many of the short haul routes. 
Tell us about those factors and where you're seeing the biggest impact on the numbers. Well, so it's firstly on the numbers, we, we, we came in on guidance. Uh, we, we'd indicated that we'd be just over a, a billion for the year. That's exactly where we came in. Um, markets uh, at the moment are, are tough. Prices are a little bit soggy, uh, particularly into the summer. Um, you talked about oil there. We're, we're in a very good position in relation to oil ourselves. We're well hedged for the next uh, 12 months at just over $71 a barrel. I think we're trading at about $73 uh, a barrel this morning. Um, so, you know, the business remains in good shape. Uh, we had a very strong performance last year on our ancillary revenues, uh, the, the likes of our car hires, our hotels, priority boarding, reserved seating. Uh, that generated another 11 euro, uh, sorry, another 11 uh, percent per passenger, where we generated 17 euro. Uh, per head. Um, so, you know, the, the, the business is in good shape, but pricing is soft, and I would anticipate the pricing will remain soft uh, for the coming months, um, and that will clearly lead to opportunities on the consolidation front as more airlines now with the higher fuel price and weaker fares find themselves in difficulties over the next I'm number of months. Curious about the 737 MAX because a number of airlines have this aircraft. It's been grounded while regulators go back over some of the issues and wait for an update from Boeing. It seems to be coming back to the skies around about June, I believe. And what's the impact been on you? Because I know many customers do not feel safe traveling with this type of aircraft anymore. So how do you conquer the fears that the customer might have, even if the regulators have cleared it? Well, I think, you know, this is going to probably be the, the best checked aircraft in the skies. They've gone through the FAA, they've gone through the European Aviation Safety Authority here in Europe, YASA, the Canadian authorities, the Singaporeans and uh, the Chinese amongst others. Um, so when it comes back to flying, I think it'll have been well uh, checked and it'll, as I said, be probably one of the safest aircraft in the sky. We have a lot of confidence uh, that this aircraft, when it does come back to service, uh, will, will be a phenomenal aircraft. Uh, we were due to take five of them uh, in the uh, April to June period. Um, we've now taken them out of flying from our, our, our summer network, so we don't anticipate flying the, the MAX at this stage until about November. Um, so I think we'll get our first one in around the October period, um, and then we'll play catch-up on the remaining 40, uh, 42 that we were used due to take over the winter and have those uh, in the fleet for the summer of uh, 2020. How much uh, compensation do you want for, for that seven, eight month delay? Well, cost is about a million customers uh, out of the network. We've cancelled five uh, lines of flying. Uh, we, you know, have uh, flagged that we will want compensation with with the manufacturer. Although, you know, they're they're caught up with other things at the moment. Clearly, getting the aircraft back in the skies is their number one priority. But that conversation will take place. Um, but in the grand scale of our numbers, it's not hugely material. Are they making positive noises about that? Look, we're, we're having, we, we, we have a long relationship uh, with them, so uh, out of every confidence, we'll, we, we'll get somewhere. Michael made some derogatory comments a couple of years ago about the skills of pilots, um, and, he, and he had a lot of pushback for that as well, saying, I think it was an easy job and what have you, and the computers do a lot of it and all this as well. But this is looked at the other side of that coin, and I, I want to put what Michael said aside, but actually use it as a reference point to the fact that the computers have been flying these, these planes and overriding the pilots in many, many ways. Is there a real issue here about pilot skills versus what the computers do to these planes? Because you hear about the horrific events on these crashes as well and what the pilots tried to do to override the, simulator, the, the, the computer software and what a disastrous and a horrific few minutes that was for both crews and what have you as well. Is there a very serious point here about pilot skills versus what the computers do on these planes? I think the first thing I'd, I'd like to say, you know, we, we've got the, the utmost respect uh, for, for all of our pilots. Uh, we have five and a half thousand of them flying for the Ryanair group, very highly skilled men and women. Um, 
the aircraft are, are, are becoming, uh, I suppose, more and more automated, uh, but where the pilots really uh, show their skills get set is when something goes wrong. Um, you know, we'd have two and a half thousand flights a day, and uh, we're, we're one of the safest airlines in the world, uh, and that's something that's very important to us. We, we, we never skimp when it comes to spending sure. money uh, on, on safety. Um, um, so, sorry, sorry. No, go, go ahead. No, I was going to change the subject actually to something completely different, but I don't know if it's really um, suitable. But I, okay, I'll get it. Jeff and I did an interview with Johan Lundgren last week from EasyJet, if mm. I dare mention that in the same breath. Uh, and we, I think, conducted what was a good interview. We talked about all the costs and the problems and that as well. But the only thing that got picked up on other interviews with him was the fact that EasyJet were overcharging, apparently, apparently, for Champions League uh, final flights down to Madrid as well. So come on, is Ryanair putting on enough flights for all of those Liverpool fans to get down to Madrid for the 1st of June? Oh, we do our best. We, we, we try to serve everybody, as, as, as you know, Jeff. Um, but with average fares of 37 euro last year, we can't be accused of, uh, of overcharging anyone no, on, no, on no, any of our flights. The 31st of May and the 1st of June, how much is an average flight down to Madrid? For, uh, for Liverpool fans? Off the top of my head, I, I, I don't have it, um, but it'll be cheaper than the competition. Okay, all right, thank you very much. We've got to wrap it up, unfortunately. Yeah. Neil, nice to see you this Pleasure. morning. Thanks, Thanks very much guys. for coming in. Okay. Uh, Neil Sorahan, the CFO of Ryanair. Still to come on the programme, markets down under a rallying following this weekend's election shock. We're going to take you live to Sydney. Stay with us, we'll be right back. Australian shares have hit an 11-year high after the country's Conservative coalition secured a shock election victory. I should say the Australian Electoral Commission says Prime Minister Scott Morrison's coalition has secured an outright majority. Morrison described the result as a, quote, political miracle. Let's get out to Mandy for more out of Sydney. Mandy, I want to come down to the Queensland numbers because it felt as though this election, typically often determined by New South Wales and Victoria, actually had a huge swing in Queensland against the Labour Party. You're absolutely right. Actually, Queensland was one of the key states that uh, that the coalition made gains on. And part of that was because of the fact that the opposition Labour Party had an unclear position on the proposed Adani coal mine. And uh, that certainly handed a, a couple of extra seats over to the coalition away from... Um, away from the opposition of Bill Shorten. But, you know, you mentioned the fact that Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, called the election result a miracle. And it's not just because of the fact that he's a deeply religious man. It's also because, honestly, the opinion polls have been predicting a Labour win by the opposition uh, since last year, particularly since August, when we saw the previous Prime Minister, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, get rolled. And, uh, and bookies had even paid out on a Labour win ahead of the election on Saturday. Um, but it just goes to show how the opinion polls can be incredibly wrong on these things. You saw it in the UK with Brexit. We also saw it in the United States with the election that, uh, that swept uh, President Trump to victory. But let's get back to those markets because you're absolutely right, Karen. We are in rally mode here with the Australian share market building on the 11-year highs to the highest since 2007. The markets hate uncertainty, don't they? They hate sudden changes. So what we've got, I guess, is clarity, uh, certainty, fair amount of status quo as well. But also, if you take a look at the various election policies that were put forward during campaigning, um, the coalition were campaigning on being the better economic managers, saying you've, you're, you're on a, you've got a safe pair of hands on the economic wheel. 
the opposition Labour Party were all about wealth redistribution and there was a lot of rhetoric of class warfare and that alienated a lot of the, uh, according to the election results, a lot of the voters out there. So I won't bore the socks off you all with uh, all the individual sectors, but just three sectors in particular that are really standing out today. One of them is the banks, which as you know have been buffeted by the Royal Commission. Um, but there was the fear that if the opposition Labour Party got in that they would be much more strident in implementing and enforcing some of the recommendations of the Royal Commission. Secondly, you have property-related stocks also moving to the upside today uh, because there were some proposed opposition um, policies on changes to negative gearing, which could have hurt the housing market even more. You know how the housing market is already very much under pressure here in Australia, and that's trickling through to household stress as well. And then the third one is also what's happening with coal miners. That goes back to your Queensland question. And uh, coal miners are, are surging today as well because the coalition, rightly or wrongly, is seen as being uh, less capable or less focused on climate change action, which I guess is good if you are a coal miner who needs a job, bad if you're a polar bear. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.